0: This is a podcast from Art and Reality – The Role of Visual Culture in the Post-Independent State. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October, 2018, and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and Nival, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, and are now available online. In this podcast, Expressions of Nationhood in Bronze and Stone. Albert Power, RHA. A paper by Sheila Brannock-Lynch.
1: In her paper, Emer demonstrated the role of painting in the art of nation building through the work and the ideas and ideals of Sean Keating. So I'm simply turning over the coin to the other side because I want to document the contribution of sculpture in the Irish Free State specifically in relation to the work by the Dublin sculptor Albert Power. Now, I suspect that while the name Albert Power mightn't be familiar to actually to most people, I'm sure you all know the Poric O'Connor statue down in Galway. And of course, this was by Albert Power. He was regarded as the one of the most important sculptors of the day, a nationalist sculptor. And at the time of his death in 1945, the president of the RHA, Dermot O'Brien, Stated that in his view, Mr. Power was one of our greatest artists. As a sculptor, he towered over the bulk of his contemporaries. Yet, the artist was quickly forgotten, like Keating, and Power almost vanished through the cracks of the story of Irish art. I've been researching him since the late 1980s, and that was at a time when most art historians were documenting the exciting uh, story of modernism. But in the last few decades, there has been a growing interest in recording the less sexier aspects of uh, 20th century Irish art and its relationship with the politics of the time. So I'm going to concentrate on a number of power's political commissions from 1922 until his death with a view to demonstrating how they tied in with the needs of the state, what they reveal in terms of its aspirations and hopes, and what the works expose about the political pressures and tensions of that time first some background on his connection with the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art and its influence on his art and his politics he enrolled as a part-time student uh, at the School of Art uh, in 1894 this i think yeah there we are the same uh, year that he uh, entered an apprenticeship with the monumental form, uh, form uh, sorry firm of George Smith In Great Brunswick Street. His apprenticeship finished in 1901, but he stayed on in the school until 1911, first as a full time student and then as a practicing artist as teacher, uh, winning all kinds of awards and prizes, including this uh, little girl on a rock. This was the gold medal for the national competition in 1911 and the adjudicators were attracted by its convincing uh, naturalism and charm. Now, several uh, teachers were very important uh, for Albert Power for uh, helping to create his own uh, abilities in sculpture. Uh, First of all, the sculptor John Hughes, who emphasised drawing and a truly detailed attention to the model. Then Oliver Shepherd, whose skill in the kind of very dexterous handling of clay was passed on to his student and mentor. Uh, and finally, William Orpen, the painter, who stressed the supreme importance of studying anatomy. You see here, there's an anatomy class. The uh, teaching that he got was very influential, and I think it comes together in two works. This work is the portrait of James Stevens from 1913, and you can see that it's very robustly modelled indeed. (coughs) And then this work, completely different. This is his little uh, piece uh, carved in marble, Icarus, where you could see that there's a real delicacy of handling in the material. The Celtic revival in the arts and crafts was at a high point at the beginning of the uh, century in the School of Art and it was very much mixed up with all the artistic manifestations. But what marked the Irish movement out from its English counterpart was the concern with the political and cultural ideas as well as making beautiful objects. And this was in part due to the impact of the Gaelic League It had been established in 1893 to keep the Irish language alive, but part of its mandate was to preserve the Gaelic elements of Irish culture. And to this end, exhibitions were organised. These were called the Orochus exhibitions, and um, uh, Albert Power, of course, participated. By 1915, thanks to the number of Sinn Féin activists in the League, it had morphed into a political movement, And that political movement um, believed that drama, literature, and the visual arts were manifestations of this new Ireland. And so it's in this milieu in which art and a desire for a distinctive cultural identity, as they became more and more interconnected, Parr and quite a number of his students, uh, our fellow students, were enthused by these ideas and developed a sincere wish to contribute to this new direction in art in whatever way that they could. A number of students were deeply involved in nationalist movements, who later turned out to be major figures in the Easter Rising. So, for instance, Countess Markovitz and her husband, Casimir, they attended the school at the evenings in the evenings at one time. Grace Gifford was a full-time pupil, and of course she married... Uh, Joseph Mary Plunkett, who was executed immediately after the Easter Rising, Patrick Pierce's younger brother Willie, who we see here with his brother, he was a great friend of ours, and they were in class together. And indeed, Patrick Pierce was a personal friend of Oliver Sheppard. And in Pierce's review of the 1906 Rock the Subi- Exhibition, he declared Shepherd to be a great Irish artist, and hoped that uh, in ten years' time, the name of the poet-sculptor would be ringing around Europe. While at the school, Willie Pearce conducted an Irish class. He became secretary for the Irish Students' Society. And then there was another uh, student, the painter Kathleen Fox, again a great friend of her (coughs) through uh, their lives. And she remembered Willie Pearce, Albert Power and Grace Gifford, Discussing politics very quietly amongst themselves, while she just listened. And ultimately, as she stated later, she believed that it was this three, they, these three, who were responsible for her becoming enthusiastic about the national nationalist cause. Now, throughout his life, Power never engaged directly in politics, he, but he remained a committed thirty-two county Republican fervently believed that Ireland should be free and also believed that uh, part of this new Ireland should have a distinctive art. There was only one occasion when he attempted to get actively involved and that was when fighting broke out on Easter week uh, in 1916 and he went to the general post office with the intention of offering help to Willie and Patrick Pearce. But the offer was turned down by Patrick Pearce, who on the grounds said that Ireland would need artists as dedicated as power to create a school of Irish art after political independence had been achieved. And this actually would become a kind of central goal for the rest of his life. So bearing in mind all these kind of various uh, significant uh, influences from the Dublin School of Art, Let's move on now to examining a couple of works that I want to. These are, as I say, political commissions. The Anglo-Irish Treaty of December 1921 caused deep divisions in Ireland. And the first priority of the government of the day, which was a nGael one, later Fine Gael, it was the rebuilding of the state. And incorporated in this ambition was a realisation that the creation of a distinctive native art had a role to play in establishing a tangible national identity. And in terms of sculpture, it would be through the use of the sculpted monument and of portraiture. (coughs) As a category of art, of political expression, sculpture, of course, has been employed by rulers, institutions and other political bodies since antiquity. It provides a a means of cultivating a tangible sense of identity in commemorating and exalting the virtues of past heroes. It celebrates in a permanent way events considered important in a nation's history. And the three-dimensional solid presence of memorials in stone and bronze serve to legitimize those in power In particular, the erection of monuments in specific public places transforms their neutrality into sites of special meaning and memory. So this free state government was acutely aware that it was not governing with consensus because it was only in power about two months when civil war broke out between those who had favoured the treaty for uh, 26 counties being independent and those who wanted to fight on for the 32 counties. So it was more than anxious to establish a secure power base. And one means of achieving this, of course, was to create a pantheon of heroes from within its own ranks, not the 1916 ranks. Hence the speedy adoption of Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins in bust form by Albert Power. These were to be the new types of hero, free state heroes within From the ranks of the Commonwealth Party. And it was hoped that Power's busts intended for the Dole Chamber would impress upon all who saw them, uh, including political opponents, of course, that they were now all being government in a tradition established by men considered worthy to be commemorated as heroes. Arthur Griffith, leader of the party, had died suddenly in August from a cerebral hemorrhage in 1922 followed only 10 days later by uh, Michael Collins, Commander-in-Chief of the Army, who'd been killed in an ambush by the anti-treaty Republicans. To further highlight uh, that these men were laudable heroes, but actually to do it in a more public way, it was decided to erect a cenotaph to be completed in time for the first anniversary of their deaths. George Atkinson from the DMSA was asked to design it, a fine arts and crafts teacher, he was anxious that the school should participate fully in the life of the state. And his design consisted of a large timber Celtic cross bearing the inscription, "Cum Gloria Jay Agus and na Two simple cement pylons flanked the cross and inserted into them were these plaster relief medallions of Griffith and Collins by power who had been asked to paint them to look like bronze. It was envisaged then at that stage that a more permanent structure would follow, which it did in 1950. Now, when examined in the context of other monuments already on the same site, the design of this cenotaph stands out in stark contrast because close by with these monuments um, we have uh, on Leinster loan... And then it was in the middle of Leinster Lawn stood the uh, bronze memorial to Prince Albert by John Henry Foley of 1971 with four allegorical figures uh, representing his interests. And on the other side, you have this massive great memorial by John Hughes uh, to Queen Victoria. So let's look at the cenotaph again. Well, you can see it's very different. And what it did was... Herald the new state at home and abroad as being noticeably different to that of its former ruler. The use of a Celtic cross, the insistence on an Irish inscription in Gaelic, the commemoration of men representing the new political dispensation, all these visual signs proclaimed the Irish Free State as a Christian Catholic country rooted in an ancient uh, pre-conquest past, and that was important, pre-conquest, with its own Gaelic tradition, culture and language. And when it was unveiled in August 1923, effectively the site was partially reclaimed because, in fact, the monument was put more or less in front of um, the prince. But just here, you can see one of the allegorical figures peeping through, um, but you weren't really meant to look at that. And of course, on the other side, within 20 years, the Queen was dismantled and uh, bundled off to Sydney. <coughs> and the Prince at that stage, i just go back, because this is where he ended up, uh, right shunted to the side, but in a very nice uh, little hedged area beside the, um, the Natural History Museum. Well, when Fianna Fáil came into power with Eamon de Valera in 1932, it too was very anxious to legitimate its rule as quickly as possible. Significantly, there was no change um, of artists by the new government (coughs) because power was already recognised as a leading sculptor of the Irish Free State. He was noted for his Republican sympathies. And in particular, of course, his style, a realistic academic style, was deemed to be a much more suited language of a national identity than one influenced by modernism. The new government speedily put in place sculpted commissions for the party's chosen heroes, so now meet Brewer and Austin Stack from the other side. They had fought on the anti-treaty Republican side during the Civil War, but... Eamon de Valera's former Republican supporters had never forgiven him for uh, he and his followers laying down their arms and entering the doll in June 1927. And when it was realised that he was literally, which he was doing, appropriating Brewer and Stack, there was outrage amongst them. It seemed to them that what he was trying to do was to create, if you like, a seamless history, as if... There had been no split over the treaty followed by a civil war. So what he's doing is laying roots back to 1916 and then nothing else happens. But there was even further outrage when uh, he decided that effectively he was usurping the 20th anniversary of the Easter Rising which of course was supposed to be in 1936. They did have a big parade and all the rest in 36, but in 1935... The GPO was reopened in all its splendour. It had been very badly damaged during 1916. And, of course, the statue to Cullen was unveiled, uh, symbolising the spirit of the Easter Rising. In 1935, Power found himself working for both sides of the Republican divide, with consequences that reveal the level of ongoing bitterness between extreme Republicans and the Fianna Fáil party. The government decided it was going to rename the headquarters of the National Health Insurance after Cahal Brewer to mark the fact that health insurance was now to be brought in under direct state control. And a plaque of Brewer was to be placed on the facade of the building on O'Connell Street. Brewer, a rebel, a Republican, he'd been active in the Easter Rising, the War of Independence and the Civil War on the anti-treaty side. And during the latter, he had sustained a bullet wound fighting in O'Connell Street and died two days later. The Brewer family were not given to extolling the virtues of Eamon de Valera. And indeed, when his widow, widow Kathleen, um, found out that um, uh, uh, de Valera wanted power to use the death mask for the plaque, she absolutely forbid it. As far as she was concerned, Eamon de Valera was a traitor. Anyway, Eamon de Valera doesn't seem to have been perturbed by this, and he just said to ahead go ahead. And yeah. So, the plaque was ready in plaster, and there were three or four copies. And then they were all delivered, in time for the unveiling in 1935, to the Dublin foundry, Messrs. MacLachlan of Pear Street, to be cast in bronze. But before the job could be completed... The copies were stolen. Three men came in and they lifted all the copies. The Irish press reported the event, stating that three men had removed them from McLaughlin's. It is widely, or was widely, rumoured at the time that Sean Russell over here, then Chief of the IRA, a friend of Kathleen Brewer and a friend of Albert Power, was responsible for the theft and the spiriting away of the plasters and its true fate only came to light when Una Stack died in 1950 and it was discovered that the plastics were hidden in a copyhole under the stairs in the house <laughs> and that it definitely had been uh, Sean Russell and two others who had um, been responsible now Mrs Brewer was not adverse to power using the death mask to model uh, a bust of her husband for the family, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, it's a plaster, which we see here, and this is in, in, the family, um, it's in the family collection. But he could not get her to allow him to use the same death mask which he had taken for a bust of Brewer to be put in the dole chamber. So Oliver Shepherd was called upon to produce one, but of course he was obliged to use photographs to secure a likeness. However, what he did was he turned it into a bust al-Antica, kind of a heroic, ideal figure. And so that way you didn't have to produce a, a, a total likeness, if you like. So anyway, the brewer bust is in the Dole Chamber now. Now, Una Stack also didn't want power to use the death mask of her husband, Austin Stack, but on the other hand, she did want him to be represented in Leinster House. So what she did was she gave him photographs, and that's what she did. And the bust is in uh, the doll as well. And then, just briefly to mention two others that came into the doll chamber later, was the bust of Tom Clarke, who was executed at 19, in 1916, and uh, the young Irelander, uh, Thomas Davis. Now I want to finish my paper by looking at uh, a monument not commissioned by the state. There were about five, um, all from various IRA groups. This one was uh, from, from uh, an IRA group in County Kerry, and it's a pikeman. The pipe man, of course, is um, a, you know, a ubiquitous figure around Ireland. But this one is notable thanks to a newspaper report in which the artist was directly quoted. And his remarks reveal the depth of his republicanism and how he used a simple design aspect of uh, figure sculpture to articulate his feelings. In October 1939, it was unveiled in Kerry. As I say, the stock design, this one depicted, you know, uh, uh, with his pike in hand and symbolic of defiance, uh, befitting for the commemoration of an armed rebellion. Power had been asked to replace the original pikeman erected there as part of the, of the celebrations in the century following uh, 1789. And it had been toppled off its plinth by the blackened hands during the War of Independence in 1921. So, as you can see, what he produces is a very conventional, full length figure, resolute expression, pike in hand. But you'll notice that he carved the figure be- beside some chopped up. Uh, carved tree trunks. It's one foot forward and there's one back and then you can see in the centre there that uh, the figure seems to be actually upheld by the tree trunk. And the point is that this is a, a standard uh, thing to do since the since antiquity. It's a prop. And what you do is uh, you have your figure and you usually, usually have a tree trunk somewhere because that stops the sculpture from Um, breaking at its weakest points, which which will always be at the ankles. But power just uh, ascribed an ideological importance to it. And the leader newspaper quoted him directly. Uh, This is full of 1930s rhetoric. This man represents his country, the man who had lost everything. His house has been burned. Everything has been taken away from him. There's nothing remaining to him but the roots of his trees, Yet he's standing on the roots which support his claim to right and justice and faces life sure of conquering. This man is Ireland. Now, as I said at the beginning of my talk, he was regarded as the foremost sculptor of nationalist Ireland at the time of his death. Unlike avant garde artists like Maney jealous Evie Hone, the White Star Group, Louis Le Brocchi, he believed that this new Irish art should be forged from traditional roots. And the whole idea of wanting to break away with that tradition was, as Emer says in her brilliant book about Keating, utterly subversive. His art embodied the patriotic ideals promulgated by the Free State and, of course, resonated with the mainly conservative art world. His academic style, his fondness for Irish themes, which we see here... His use of Irish stone wherever possible. These things identified him completely with the Free State. One critic called um, this work native and national in inspiration, which it was. It's a salmon. Bertie Power loved fishing, but he was, uh, he believed that the salmon really was, uh, you know, a fine representative, uh, a representation of of Ireland. And he liked to use uh, native stone rather than um, uh, Italian marble. But Ireland underwent a period of rapid economic change from the late 1950s on. The Arts Council was established in 1951 to promote all forms of Irish art outside Ireland. And during that decade, Irish artists uh, represented the country at the uh, Venice Biennale. Then you have the launch of the Rusk exhibitions from 1967 to 88. Marking the internationalisation of Irish art with its inclusion of uh, major contemporary art. So, our Paris art didn't resonate at all with any of these changes and it quickly became old fashioned. And so he became a mere side player in the history of art. So, I hope that my talk this morning has helped to rescue him from the shadows and to propel him back into the limelight where he rightly belongs.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality The Role of Visual Culture in the Post-Independent State The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art History and Cultural Policy and NAIVAL the National Irish Visual Arts Library The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.